0: I've been poring over these words all week. Um, really wrestling with this, with this chapter. Uh, little side note. I feel like preaching at its core is taking a text and just wrestling it to the ground. And trying to figure out the main point and then how to communicate that. And I have been wrestling with Ephesians chapter 3 this week because what we have in these words that were just read is pure gold. It's magnificent. And no matter how well I communicate today, all right, in some way my words are going to fail this text. It's just that good, all right? But this is where I take heart, in that the, the words alone in the text, in Ephesians 3, are so powerful and so rich that if I can get you to just gaze at them long enough that we might be able to see this cosmic reality of what we are part of as a body of Christ and as a church, especially in this, what is sort of a hinge verse, which is Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, which Lynn just read. Ephesians three ten, so that through the church... The manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. Everybody say, amen. "Amen." This verse, Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10, literally acts as a hinge on which all of Ephesians just swings wide open. Um, last summer, I had the privilege of going to Idaho. Anybody ever been to Idaho? How many of you think Idaho looks like a potato? That's what I thought. I'd never been there. Our friends from uh, church, Gwen, Carol, and David here, um, invited us to go on family vacation with them. How awesome is that? To Idaho, and I had in my mind a potato, like a one, like literally a big giant piece of brown potato skin. You know that is Idaho, and so we're in order to get to Idaho, you have to fly there, right? I guess you could drive. Whew. So we're flying to Idaho. You know, we're going to be hiking through the mountains. We're going to be sitting by a lake, listening to this uh, Appalachian-style bluegrass band. We're going to be swimming in the lake. We're going to be taking boats out, um, eating eating great food, seafood. But in order in order to do all that, in order to get there, we had to fly there. So we're flying to Idaho, and we're going over uh, Kansas. Have you ever flown over Kansas? wow it's like a big quilt like these circles and squares of all these different colors it looks like a patch quilt it literally does so I'm just flying over I'm like wow it's amazing and then all of a sudden out of nowhere there's this mountain range that we just hit I mean we don't we fly over we don't actually hit the mountain range out of nowhere we're in the middle of mountains all right before long, we're, we're flying over Idaho. There are these like, jagged, beautiful rocks and mountains and hills just all over the place as far as the eye can see And at this point in our flight, I'm like looking out the window. You know, I know that I'm gonna be hiking through these. I know, I know that we're gonna be driving and seeing all of this stuff at ground level. But at this moment, I was like really happy to be 30,000 feet above ground and just gaze at this sight this beautiful magnificent sight at where we're heading this is where we're going what paul is doing here in Ephesians chapter 3 is he's pulling out 30,000 feet all right and he's get, he's allowing us an opportunity to just simply gaze at reality to gaze at the cosmic nature of what we're doing as believers, what we're part of as a church. And here's the thing. In the next couple chapters, in Ephesians chapter four and five and six, we're going there in the next couple weeks, Paul's gonna take us back down the 30,000 feet. We're gonna be going through the rocks and over the mountains and through the hills and up the pathways of what it means to live the Christian life. We're gonna be talking about uh, unity, about Uh, divisions about racism about husbands and wives and about sexual immorality the 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 nitty gritty sort of like walking through the the ground level path of the Christian life but before we do that and before Paul takes us there all right he takes us up 30,000 feet because he wants us to see just how beautiful this really is all right So what we're going to do this morning, we're going to go up with Paul. We're going to let him take us up 30,000 feet. And then from the highest point, we're just going to kind of gaze out the window and we're going to see what it is that we're part of. We're going to then hit some lessons, some perspectives, because, you know, when you're 30,000 feet up in the air, you're looking at the mountains, you see a whole different picture than when you're down in the mountains. We're going to learn what we can learn. We're going to get some perspectives from 30,000 feet, and then we're going to be coming back down next week. And walking through some of these mountains. So go with me to uh, Ephesians chapter 3. Um, if you don't have a Bible and you need a Bible, just raise, raise your hand. Dustin said uh, raise your right hand if you need a Bible, your left hand if you need a water. Um, <laughs> so I guess we're giving out waters today as well. But uh, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Let's go ahead and pray and then we will dive into this passage. God, the view that we see uh, from thirty thousand feet is is tremendous. Uh, the the words that Paul uses as he writes um, from this perspective is uh, magnificent. They are magnificent. They are uh, hard to grasp. It's hard to even figure out how to communicate it, what it, what to say. But God, we, we believe that these words are powerful. Um, we believe that what we're seeing is beautiful. So God, as we do walk through this, this passage, as we wrestle with Ephesians chapter three, we do ask that you uh, imprint in our hearts and on our lives the cosmic reality of the church and what we are part of this morning. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray and everybody said, amen. Ephesians chapter 1 or 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, so back up. Ephesians chapter 1, if you remember, riches, right? the gifts from the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the many good things, these immeasurable riches that God has just dropped on us and blessed us with. Ephesians 2, we were dead, he says, by the way. We were, we were gone. We, there was, we had nothing in us, but he made us alive through his grace, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. And then he says, so for this reason, okay, for this reason, I, Paul, Now look at this, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles. This is the first time in this letter now that Paul says he's a prisoner. And if he didn't come out and actually say that, we might think that he was like, you know, sailing the Caribbean or something, the way he's writing. I mean, he's just, he's in such a good mood as he is writing, isn't he? I mean, like, he's just sitting back. I mean, no problems, riches, grace. I was dead, but now I'm alive. Like, God is so good, And oh, by the way, I'm in chains. (laughs) By the way, every night in my own home, I'm chained to a guard because they think I might run away. You see, Paul's living from a perspective of 30,000 feet. I mean, he is in the trenches. He's got chains on his wrist, but he's seeing things from a different perspective. He has a different level So for this reason, he says, because of all these, these good things. I, Paul, a prisoner, n- by the way, not of Nero. I'm not a prisoner for Nero. I'm not here because I was just wronged. You know, by the way, Paul's in jail because he was preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. The Jews kind of trapped him. They set him up. He's, he's, he's on house arrest for two years now. He's waiting to see Caesar He's been wronged in many ways. I mean, if it was any of us, we would be on the phone with our lawyers figuring out some kind of lawsuit. Like, we are suing these people. Well, but see, Paul, he, he's, he's, he's wrongly locked up. He's, I mean, he has trials, he has mountains smacking him in the face. But, by the way, I'm a prisoner not for Nero. I mean, the entire letter of Ephesians and Paul's entire outlook of, of life is just dipped and, and soaked in the sovereignty of God and in the cosmic reality of the church, of what he's part of. I mean, there's something so much bigger here than these chains right now. And so I'm here, I'm in these chains because of the gospel, because, for, for you Gentiles, for this beautiful big thing that, that we are part of. And he's about now to pray. If you look at verses 14 through 21, everybody see that? This is where he's going. This is a prayer in Ephesians chapter three, verses 14 through 21. So what he's saying essentially, he's laying, laying the groundwork for the gospel, the groundwork for the blessings, for the riches. And he's now moving into a prayer for strength, a prayer for unity, a prayer for the filling of the spirit. But he stops halfway, like, just like mid-sentence, This is what I love about Paul, by the way. Look at look at the end of verse one. You see that line right there? That kind of indicates there's just this pause, this break. What I love about Paul, he reminds me of myself at times, right? Rabbit trails all over the place. I mean, Paul, like, let me all right. God is good, God has blessed us. He's we were dead, now we're alive let me pray for you but wait 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 before i pray and then he goes on this long rant all right assuming that you remember what we're talking about assuming that you know the mystery that has been revealed to me it's been revealed to the apostles like you have to you have to pull back and recognize something here and so let's go with his detour all right we're going to go with the detour This is where he takes us up 30,000 feet. This is where we can begin to see the beauty in the mountains. And then we're going to go to the prayer. And the prayer is sort of this perspective. Because Paul realizes that we don't all live at 30,000 feet. We don't all see the big picture of what we're part of. So let's go with it. Um, The mystery of... The gospel, Genesis chapter twenty-two, verse eighteen. You don't have to turn there. It says this: God is speaking to Abraham, and he says, "And through your offspring, the father of the listen, the father of Israel, the father of the Jews, through your offspring, through the Jews, all nations on earth will be blessed." So I'm I'm choosing you. And you're going to have a family come through your lineage, and through this lineage, through your offspring, everybody is going to be blessed. Isaiah f- chapter 49, verse 6. I will make you as a light, speaking to Israel, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Acts chapter 11 now. Jesus has come. He's went to the cross, risen. Acts chapter 11, Peter is now explaining to um, to the Jews that Christ did not just come for the Jews. He's talking about meat. Things are different now. Christ has come also to the Gentiles and in verse 18 of Acts chapter 11, He says, it says this, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to faith. This great mystery of salvation, which has been fully revealed now to the prophets. We've seen glimpses of it all throughout the Old Testament. Paul is, Old Testament, Paul is now saying it's been given to me It's been fully and in detail. God has fully revealed it to me so that I can now pass this great mystery on to you, the Gentiles. This dividing wall of hostility has been forever broken down. Look at verse six. Let's read it. The mystery is this, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given, uh, given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable, here's, here's that word again, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everything, for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. The great mystery of salvation is that those who were the furthest away are not out of the reach of God's love. And oh, by the way, that's every one of us. Paul is preaching this this gospel, taking it to the Gentile, this this beautiful, magnificent, good news that God has come to redeem all of humanity and the gospel is open to all. So that, he says, why is God bringing us together? Why is God uniting us the Jews and the Gentiles, those who were estranged, those who were far apart, those who were the furthest away. Why is he doing this? For what purpose? He says, so that, look at verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom, This is a word that means uh, diverse, beauty, great, and complex, a diverse, beautiful collection. The, The amazing, beautiful, and diverse wisdom, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known, he says, to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Now we have to stop right there and ask, who are the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places? Go ahead and ask. Who are the rulers? And, thank you. And authorities in heaven. It's a big, <laughs> chunky. Some have uh, supposed that they are referring to governors, presidents, human rulers, and authorities. Now, we are to demonstrate to our human rulers and authorities the manifold wisdom of God. That's true, but that's not actually who Paul is referring to here. Paul is actually going much deeper than that. He's referring to. The, uh, uh, he's referring to the rulers and the authorities that influence the r- rulers and authorities um, in the flesh. He's referring to the same rulers and authorities that we see in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul says, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against who? Principalities and powers, and rulers, and authorities of this dark age. I want you guys to see this. I mean, this is, this is so huge what Paul is just drawing out right here. The, the angelic and demonic world, Paul is saying, is watching us. The angelic and demonic world is actually observing us, the ecclesia, the church, as we gather. The angelic and demonic world is observing us as we handle ourselves on Saturday nights to prepare or how we, maybe we don't prepare to gather for worship. The the rulers and the principalities of the heavenly places are observing us as we interact with one another, as we speak to one another, as we speak about one another when that person's not around. The angelic world, he's saying, is observing us as we, as we seek to love and engage those of us who are, who are, who are different, who are from a different background, a different culture than you. As you seek to work through problems as we come together as a body, as an ecclesia, the, and, oh, do you guys see this? The angelic world, he's saying, is watching and observing us. So if we could like peel it, peel it back for just a moment, what we would see is the angelic world looking in at our gathering right now, watching us. And not just want, not just observing, but learning from us. So there's something then that they are to actually learn from the way that we come together, from the way that we gather as a church. And what is that? It's he says it's the manifold wisdom of God. Do you guys realize this cosmic influence? that we have as a local body of believers? I mean, I just want to stop for a second and say, we we talk a lot about humans looking in on us. You know, when humans observe what we do, they ought to see Christ. When humans observe what we do, they ought to see the manifold wisdom of God. Paul is saying, yeah, that, and also, when the angelic world, when the rulers and the principalities of the heavenly realms observe what we're doing, they should learn something about the manifold wisdom of God. And that is this, in Paul's immediate context, all right, in Ephesus, Jews and Gentiles coming together as one body. So they are to be able to observe this see those who were eternally seemed to be separated from one another. To see those who seem to be at one time so far off from the covenant community be made one. As the angels observe this, they are to see that God was indeed wise in sending his son to die for sinful humanity. That The redemptive plan of God that poured out from the mind of God was indeed, listen, a wise plan. Like really good thing. The angels have witnessed the Gentiles who, remember last week, were at one time separated from God by that dividing wall of hostility. They could only get so far And they have witnessed this Jesus Christ come into the world and kick down the wall of hostility and open up a whole new pathway. And they have seen now how the Gentiles in this church, right here in Ephesus, how the Gentiles now are coming together with the Jews and they are on equal ground. And they are learning That God was indeed wise in sending his son to die for sinful humanity. Like, this is beautiful. And guess how they're learning it? By watching the church. By the church living it out. The angels in America have witnessed hundreds of years of racism to the point where one human being thought that they had the right to own another human being. And they have seen how Jesus Christ came into the world to die for sinful, broken bigots. And, and, and at the ground, at the, at, the, at the foot of the cross, there, there is no division. It is all equal ground right there. Amen. And they are learning, the angels have learned, that God was indeed wise in sending his son to die. And how are they learning this? Do you get it? Not through reading a textbook. Not even through reading the Bible. They get it through watching the actors play it out. They get it through watching and observing us, the church. The angels have witnessed a young man who was Told at one point, you are good for nothing. You will never amount to anything. Running the streets, got a girl pregnant, convinced her to have an abortion, only to leave her the day of the abortion. Just rock bottom despair. He was once dead. God flipped the switch, the lights came on, And he was redeemed. The redeeming blood of Christ just washed through him. And the angels are observing, and they're seeing that God is indeed wise in sending his son to die. And where are they seeing this played out? In the church. In the church. As broken, fallen human beings are convicted of their sin and the the lights flip on and they repent and they turn in fullness to Christ and they are redeemed. And every single person who is redeemed is no longer this individual but joins this community of saints, this community of individuals who have been redeemed and have become part of this one body. Listen, we have a a cosmic significance in what we are are doing, what we are up to. The point of this passage and the point of my sermon literally just hinges on this verse, Ephesians chapter three, verse 10. And and it it is this. The local church, literally the gathering, the ecclesia, is central, everybody say central Central. to God's cosmic redemptive plan for the world. As the angels peer in on what we're doing and we are teaching them something, we have become a central part of God's redemptive plan and his redemptive work in this world and we have a cosmic significance. When you were invited to church, did anybody ever tell you that? Like, hey, you want to come to church, church with me on Sunday? Oh, by the way, this isn't just a, a church that we go to on Sundays. This church actually is part of God's redemptive plan for the world. It plays a central piece in what God is doing in the world. And oh, by the way, this church has cosmic significance as the angels and the demons watch what we do. So we're teaching them a thing or two. Next time you invite somebody to church, do it that way. See if they come. Hey, they might. I mean, we've got to like elevate here. We've got to recognize what we're part of. It's more significant than what we think we're part of. It's much bigger and better than what we think we're part of. So for this reason, you see Paul's detour right here all over the place, rabbit trails. I love Paul. So for this reason, he says, no, I I, I bow my knees before the father. Look at verse 14. Let's read his prayer. For this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. As we're looking out this window here, all right, Paul's taking us up 30,000 feet, we're seeing the beauty of what we're part of. We're seeing the mountains, we're seeing the patchwork. As we look out this window, there are now perspectives that we can see that may not have been visible before we went up 30,000 feet. So what I wanna do is just take a couple minutes here and just draw out, point out some of these lessons, some of these perspectives that we see from 30,000 feet. Number one, the first perspective as we look out the windows is, the, is that the church is not optional for believers. The church is not optional for believers. Notice that Paul doesn't say, through the manifold, or through the saved individual, the manifold wisdom of God is made known. He never says that. Through the church, through the the ecclesia, through this literal like gathering, do you guys know ecclesia church means gathering? Mm-hmm. Through the gathering of these saved individuals the manifold wisdom of God will be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. As we come together and as we lean on each other and sharpen one another and as we grow together and as we serve each other and as we disciple each other and as we watch each other's kids and as we welcome the stranger among, as we, as we be the church. He also doesn't say this to, in verse 21, to, to him be glory in my soul. For Paul, his one one soul is just not big enough to handle all of the praise that is due his name. He says, to him be glory in the church as these redeemed, saved souls come together and throw our junk on Christ and praise him. To him be glory. That's where we find the spirit of praise. Church is not optional for us church isn't like the gas station where i mean like how many of you love going to the gas station how many of you need to go to the gas station all right church isn't like that you see what i'm saying it's not just the place that we have to go whenever we need a fill up Oh, no. that's consumerism i mean That's a way to look at the church. There is what we might call the consumerism mentality when it comes to church. People come to church thinking of it like a gas station just to get their fill up, but that's not what it's about. The manifold wisdom of God is not going to be made known just to people getting their tanks filled up. It's not like a vitamin supplement that you take with an otherwise healthy healthy body just to kind of keep you healthy. Keep you, keep you going, keep you kicking. On the contrary, the Christian, the believer, is to have church at the very center of their life. We are, as believers, to be church-centered. So as the flesh and blood, physical family is, the blood family, as, as that is central to a godly husband and a godly wife, In that same way, the spiritual family is as significant and as central to the Christian. And so from this perspective then, we're seeing the beauty of this. We're seeing from this perspective, we see the church is no longer just an optional thing. We can finally move away from church shopping we no longer question whether or not, or we no longer question what I can get out of this body, but we begin to think, man, like what kind of role can I play in this body? What is, what is my piece? What are my lines? What's my part in this drama? An imperfect body of believers, an imperfect church whose goal is to make known the manifold wisdom of God. That's the first perspective. The second perspective is this. The church is strengthened by God's spirit. How, how terrible would it be? Just imagine with me. How terrible would it be if some years down the road, the garden church was this um, really cool place to go, We had some of the coolest people in our services. We had awesome things going on in the community. We had 100 economic development programs, people getting jobs and starting retirement accounts. We had hundreds of people from around attracted to what we do. We had the best band with like this jazz, soulful blues. Man, like wouldn't that be awesome? We're, we're going there, right, John? Just got to get those musicians. If, you wanna, if you're a musician, see John. We had all of these things, all right? All of, what well, you might say, all of these, like these marks that you might say, this is an awesome church, okay? What a travesty it would be if we had all of those things and it was done with the strength of our flesh and the spirit of of God was not powerful and active and cutting in our midst. What a travesty that would be. When we're reading Paul's prayer here, what we see in verse 16, with this 30,000 mile high view, he's like, wow, like this is so far above and beyond anything that you guys can ever pull off on your own. So I'm going to pray that God strengthens you in your inner spirit with his spirit, or with with his spirit, because that's what you need. The the, the cosmic church only has significance because we are filled and strengthened and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. Without God's spirit, we, we are standing in direct opposition to much of mainstream culture culture all around around us. We are sitting in the middle of an age-old battle. Again, if we could just peel it away for a second. We're sitting in the middle of this age-old battle that's been warring all around us. I mean, every Sunday morning, it ought to be our prayer. As we fall on our knees and we say, God, as we as we are coming to gather together today, we are in over our heads. As we consider what it looks like to disciple each other and to challenge each other and to share the, the gospel with our neighborhood and to push and fight against the principalities and powers, we have to recognize and fall on our knees and say we are over our heads completely like we are drowning out here. We don't have what it takes. I don't have the talent And the skill to convict you of your sin through my words. I can't do that. So the cosmic church then is strengthened not by our flesh. Not by our strength and our wisdom and our willpower. But only by the spirit of God that is active in our hearts. That is convicting sinners and that is turning on the lights. So we pray then for God's strength. Through His Holy Spirit, that is the second perspective. The third perspective, from thirty thousand feet, as we look out the, the windows, it changes the way that we are loving. It changes the way that we love. As as we look out. And we see this magnificent redemptive plan, which is written by God as the Father chooses us, the Son dies for us, the Spirit seals us. As as God writes out this redemptive saga, and as we become the actors within this saga, and the audience, by the way, are the angels. As we play this out and as we see it, it causes us to love in a whole new way. In the Ephesus church, Jew and Gentile now brought together as one body and they have never loved before. See, we often in the Christian world, okay, cross-Christianity, we often believe that God just died for a few people and most of them are our, our own race. That's typically what we believe. Come from a white church background, we're shocked when we find out that other races worship God, as what? Black church background, what, God died for white people too? Korean church background, God died for a, like what we, what we begin to see as we pull back and as we see this broad scope we see the breadth of God's love. That when that spirit was initially poured out, it wasn't just five people that were saved, it was 5,000 people that were saved of different ethnicities and backgrounds. So we see the breadth of God's love and we see his length and we see his height and we see the depth of his love as a river, a, a wide, broad river, Covers a whole lot of ground. That's what we begin to see. His love is much more broad than I ever dreamed it would be. It covers a whole lot of people and a whole lot of sin. Charles Spurgeon said, "There are going to be more people in heaven than you realize, than than you thought." And then he adds to that by saying, and some of those you think will be there won't be there. (laughs) How humbling, but how true. From this perspective, we see the breadth of God's love. We see how wide it is, both Jew and Gentile. We see the length of God's love. We're just looking down and we see how long it is. When did it start? When did his love for us begin? Like we're we're gazing out the window trying to see the beginning of it and when does it end? And then we just like the prophet Jeremiah, we say he has loved me with an everlasting love. We see the breadth of his love. We see the length of his love. We see the height of his love. It's, It's high enough to lift the Gentile from their lowly state to the covenant family of God. To lift humanity into relationship with the creator, the breadth, the length, the height, and we see the depth of his love. It is so deep. It is so deep. It finds its way into the darkest recesses of our soul. And there we find love and grace and forgiveness. Now, when we are up here and we are seeing the when we are seeing the breadth and the length and the width and the, the, uh, the depth and the height of God's love, it then fills us with love for one another. And we love with breadth. We love with length. We love with height and we love with depth. This perspective, looking out our window, changes the way that we love those among us, and those who are not among us. Number four, fourth perspective, the church we see is called to preach. Everybody say preach. Preach. In in verse eight, Paul says, I have come to preach this to the Gentiles. You guys know what the word preach means, literally? To proclaim good news, to proclaim good, good news. The Romans, when they were sending out news of a war that has been won, they would send out, quote unquote, preachers to go out and to proclaim that good news. Now, just consider with me for a moment. Rome sent you out to go proclaim the good news of the victory. And when you got there, you said, I'm going to preach without words. And I'm going to just live as if we're free over there. But I'm not gonna tell anybody. It's kind of silly, isn't it? The idea of preaching without words isn't really preaching. Preaching is proclaiming, everybody say proclaiming. Proclaiming. The good news. And the good news is that the battle has been won And we are part of God's redemptive plan now. This is our central role. The Father chose us. The Son came and redeemed us and his blood covers us and saves us. The Spirit has been sent to fill us and to seal us and the church is sent now into the world to come together as a body, to worship together, to encourage each other and to proclaim the good news to the world around us, to preach the gospel. That's what we see from 30 Thousand miles, church, my brothers and sisters. Since, since we have a cosmic significance in what we're doing right now, in this moment, as, as you listen, as we sing, as we gather, as, I pre- as we talk afterward, as you interact with each other, as we have a cosmic significance in this moment, according to the riches of his glorious grace that he has just lavished upon us, may we be strengthened by the Holy Spirit May we be filled with the very Spirit of God and empowered, not by our flesh, but by Him. May we have the strength to comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of God's love for each other. And may we love in that same way then Paul ends it now to him who is able to do abundantly more listen to this than than we can ever ask or think he is able to do more than you can think of asking him to do right now because according to the spirit that's working in you the spirit that's praying on your behalf for the things that you can't even think about Now to him who's able to do abundantly more than everything that we can ask or think, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever and ever. Amen. Pray with me. God, as we view reality from 30,000 feet and as as we look out these windows and we see the mountains and the the valleys and the hills and the beauty of the, the entire thing, we see our cosmic significance in what we're doing. Lord, may this no longer be mundane for us. As we serve, as we volunteer, as we give of our time, may we see the, 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 the beauty of it. May we see our central role in your redemptive plan for this world. And over the next couple weeks as we kind of come back down into the mountains and into the valleys where we live our lives. And as we walk through chapters 4 and chapters 5 and chapters 6 over the next weeks God give us the strength give us the perseverance May we recognize that we are in over our heads and if it wasn't for your spirit filling us that we would be complete failures and all would be lost. Lord, I pray that as we continue to be the church this morning, throughout the week, as we get together in homes, Bible studies, as we encourage each other in one-on-one discipleship relationships, Lord, and as, we, as we go about the life of being a local church, I pray that the angels and the demonic world may be able to look in at us and watch us and observe and see the manifold wisdom that has come from you, that you are indeed wise to send your son into this world to die for us sinful, fallen human beings.